0: Welcome to the Wealth Studying podcast. This is episode 243. Today is August 8, 2017. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder, and money manager at InvestableWealth.com. Well, in the last episode, I promised to come back later in the week and give you some specifics and run down where my current portfolio was focused. And you know what? Some people got in touch with me. They said, hey, you haven't done a YouTube video update in a while. Why don't you do a video where you talk specifically about your model portfolio? And so that's what I did. And in fact, I used it as a way to talk about how I'm positioned for the remainder of the year. And you know, basically what my outlook is in terms of how I'm positioned through the rest of 2017. Now, I want to caution you. Remember, this is just my opinion. It's not advice. I'm simply telling you what positions I'm invested in and what I'm likely to do as far as my strategy over the remaining you know, five, six months of the year. Now, also, I'll caution that that is all likely to change if market conditions change. And just as an example, I made this video last Thursday. I mentioned that I would probably be trimming back um, maybe a few or at least one of my international stocks or my international ETFs because I had been overweighted in that sector is performed really well and while I do expect that to keep going forward you know one or two of those positions might be getting a little frothy as it turned out on Friday I ended up selling the ETF that I had that focused on India the video that I did last week on YouTube I'll put a link in today's show do take a look at that it's only about 10 minutes You'll see all the positions that I'm holding, how they break down in terms of different sectors, and I'll give you a little commentary on where I think they're headed. So as far as today's episode, since I already covered the big 30,000-foot level of you know, where my portfolio is, what I wanted to do today is specifically talk about one portion of my portfolio, and that's the, the contrarian value side of my portfolio. It represents uh, right around 20% of my my current portfolio. I would have no problem taking that up to 30, 40, or maybe even 50 or more percent of my portfolio, depending upon if I can buy into good quality blue chip stocks that I think are out of favor. And that's the key to this value contrarian part of my portfolio. And that's what we're going to touch on today I'm going to quickly tell you all the positions that I'm holding that consist of that kind of nomenclature and, and specifically hone in on Walmart, which is something that you've you know, heard me talking about for a couple years now because I've held it for that long. But the real point that I'm bringing this up is because oftentimes people will say, you know, John, what are you? Are you a value investor? Are you a momentum investor? Uh, you talk about trends, you use technicals, you know, you kind of seem to be all over the map. Well, I am. You see, the market isn't any one particular way. And so I'm not dogmatically or ideologically focused that just one method works. You know, many episodes ago, I did a podcast dedicated to the absolute best investment strategy. And you know what that is? It's the one that works for you. And so that's really the emphasis of what I talk about here in the Wellsteading Podcast about building your wealth and, you know, not only developing your investment strategy but starting your small business or learning how to make more money at your corporate job or as an employee or, you know, however it is you build your net worth. doesn't matter how somebody else does it. It matters how you do it. And since you have different talents and abilities than anybody else on the entire face of the earth, it is going to be unique to you. But there are some themes that run throughout building wealth. I like to say that money goes to where it's treated best. And so if you put an emphasis on doing the things that money likes and that money flows to, you're likely to find yourself building a lot of wealth. It doesn't happen overnight. It may take you five years. It may take you 25 years. It all depends on where you're starting, what you're starting with, and what your talents and abilities are. That's no different if you're investing in the stock market or if you're starting a business. Ah, but I digress. In any case, as far as what type of investor am I, I like to think that I'm an investor that focuses on owning appreciating assets. And that's an appreciating asset whether it be a stock or an ETF or real estate or, you know, even a personal relationship. I want to have personal and family relationships with people that are, you know, that are always getting better. They're appreciating. You know, 30 some years ago, I married my wife because I loved her and she was fun and she was pretty and all those kind of things. But you know what? She's been an appreciating asset. She gets better every year. She started out being a girlfriend, then she became a wife and a mother, and you know, she was always a best friend, and after 30 some years of relationship, that keeps growing and appreciating. So owning and investing and appreciating assets is incredibly important, and that's what my investment strategy is, to do my best to own appreciating assets. And so that means that I'm often going to move between different sectors or do things that look like they conflict each other. Sometimes I'll be investing in value stocks. Other times I'll be speculating. Maybe I might be buying into a momentum stock. But the point is that I'm always trying to own something that's going to be worth more tomorrow than it is today. Now, that's the tricky in the million dollar question. If you get that right, you can make a lot of money but it's a very hard thing to do on a consistent basis. I usually avoid trendy things and high volatility speculative things like, you know, Bitcoin and, you know, investing in the internet bubble, you know, back in 2000 or land speculation in 2007. That's where the contrarian side of me comes in. I figure if everybody else is already doing it, it's too late for me to get into it. I also don't want to see my assets, you know, drastically fluctuate over a period of, of a day or a few hours, like happens with some of these more speculative investments like Bitcoin. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. It just means that now, in my investment phase where I'm at managing my money and my client money, this is retirement money. This is something that we want to grow on a consistent basis as best as we can. We want to avoid any type of a catastrophic loss like happened in 2008 when the uh, housing and financial bubble blew up and the market dropped, you know, 48%. Or back in 2000 when the high-tech sector, the uh, the QQQs dropped, I don't know, something on the order of 80% and took, you know, 15 years to recover. Or you look at a bubble economy like Japan, which has never gone back to the highs that the, the uh, Nikkei stock market had hit back, I don't know, 1991, something like that. I want to avoid those kind of problems. And again, that's the tricky part. There's no guarantee. But what I try and do, rather than just follow trends or just follow momentum or just follow fundamentals, is to use a composite of those things and to really focus on appreciating assets. I'll give you a quick example. For a lot of years now, you've heard me talk about gold and how I think that it's likely that gold could depreciate in value as opposed to appreciating in value. That has a lot to do with one of the theses I I laid out in my book, The Robots Are Coming, and that's where I say that, you know, I'm not convinced that inflation is in our future. I think it's very likely that because of all the technological applications that are happening, that deflation could be the big component that affects, that affects us over the next 20 years, as opposed to inflation. That would have a deteriorating effect on you know, things that traditionally hold their value well against inflation, things like gold, things like real estate. Because I've made these statements and I've even said, hey, if you look at the price of energy and the relationship that gold has to energy, and specifically petroleum costs, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we saw gold, you know, drop well below $1,000 an ounce, maybe $900 an ounce, maybe $600 an ounce. Now I have no way of knowing that. I'm just painting a picture of where things may go if in fact old valuations and correlations hold up. going to get into all that in this episode. There's a YouTube video out there about it. I've written several blog posts about it over the years at investablewealth.com. And I'm sure if you search on wealthsteading.com, you'll hear me lay out that case of why gold could go down, not up. In any case, the reason I bring this up is when I talk that way, people will say, oh, you hate gold. And no, no, I don't hate gold at all. Gold is one asset class that we're able to invest in. Gold, in particular, was a great investment from the year 2000 to the year 2011. So over you know a little more than a decade, it had an amazing run. If you invested in it in those years, you likely made some pretty good money. But you know what? It went into a death spiral in 2011 and didn't recover, or didn't even start to partially recover until around 20, say 15. So for about three or four years, if you own gold, Or if you had bought gold in, say, you know, 2010, 11, or 12, you were likely losing a lot of money over that three or four year time period. And so while there was a decade where it was great to be in gold, there were a few years when it was really horrible to be in gold. And you know what? Since then, it's been pretty stagnant. It's had some moves up and things, but, you know, it really can't get much above that 1250 level. So, do I hate gold? No. I just think that right now, this is not the time and season to be owning gold. But back to today's topic, and that's specifically the value-oriented or the contrarian um, dogs-of-the-dow type strategy that I'm taking with you know right now about 20% of my portfolio. Now, For those of you that are not familiar with the term dogs-of-the-dow, that's a trading methodology that's really simple in nature and it, it often works quite well. You know, the Dow Jones Industrial Average has 30 different stocks in it. It's an index of 30 stocks. And these are generally the 30 largest industrial stocks in America. I mean, that's what they were based on, but they're not so industrial anymore. So don't let that name fool you. There's names on there like Nike, which really doesn't manufacture anything. They're a marketing company for athletic footwear and clothing. Walt Disney's on that list. Home Depot mcdonald's you know there's a lot of companies uh, travelers insurance a lot of companies that really have nothing to do with quote industrial so the name has changed over the years but bottom line it's pretty much America's big 30 blue chip stocks it's a big quality multinational companies the dogs of the Dow strategy basically says that once a year however you want to rebalance your portfolio go in and buy the 10 stocks that are at the bottom the ones that are performing the worst for the year, which correlates basically to the 10 stocks and the Dow Jones Industrial Average that have the highest yield. So they're paying the highest dividend generally because they're the worst performer on the list. More or less, that's what the dogs of the Dow strategy is. Now, again, if you're only gonna use one strategy, that's not a bad one. I don't necessarily take that path, but when I am looking at owning good quality blue chip companies, Oftentimes, they end up being dogs of the Dow for that very reason. They're good companies, they're out of favor, that pay a nice dividend, and because they are big, large multinationals, they're big institutional-type companies, even though they may be having a, a bad time, they may be hitting a speed bump, they are likely to probably be doing better in the future. Thus, they become an appreciating asset. Walmart is one of the dogs of the Dow. It's something that I've owned for almost exactly two years now. And I want to talk about Walmart to illustrate this point of value investing or investing in out-of-favor stocks or a contrarian type position. Now, I've gotten a lot of criticism over the years for owning Walmart. I bought it two years ago when I felt that it was breaking out of a base that it had been building at around a 50-day moving average. It had occurred before earnings. The company was making a lot of changes. They had uh, replaced their old CEO, I felt that they were moving in the right direction and that they would become an appreciating asset. Well, I was wrong. Earnings came out, they weren't as good as they could have been. Walmart got a, ba- a lot of bad press. I think at uh, this worst point, when I owned it over the last two years, Walmart's stock may have been down, I don't know, 10, 11, 12%, something like that, maybe even worse. I don't remember. The key here, and this is the key point to owning value blue chip stocks and taking a contrary position in these high quality stocks, is that yes, they're out of favor and they could get cheaper, but you're not putting all your eggs in one basket. You know, when I went out and bought Walmart at the time, I only put 10% of my overall portfolio in it. And generally, when I take these kind of value positions, I never invest more than 5 to 10% of my portfolio in any one stock. And also, when it did drop down to, you know, 12% or whatever it was negatively, I didn't worry about that because as I read the press and I looked at the numbers and I looked at the data, I could see that Walmart was making incremental improvements in many areas, um, one of which was their online sales. And so I ignored what the media said, which is a common theme in this podcast, and I focused instead on what I thought were solid fundamentals at Walmart, change in leadership, and their ability to take advantage of existing and long-term trends. So when it had dropped down precipitously and fell like a rock, I didn't panic. I held on to the position. Well, I bought Walmart at around, I don't know, $70, $71 a share. You can go back again in the archives investablewealth.com. You'll see the day I bought it. You can look up the price. And over these two years, right now, it has an unrealized capital gain of over 13%. It's unrealized gain because I haven't sold it yet. So, you know, I bought it around 70, 71. Today, it's at around uh, almost 82. That gives me an unrealized gain of over 13%. Now, when you factor in that it also pays, based on when I bought it, of about a 3% dividend, and I've held it for two years, that means that I've collected 6% roughly in dividends. So adding 6 to 13 gives me a 19% total return over the last two years. Now, that's not a home run. That's certainly not a return that I would have gotten in Bitcoin. But I also don't have the risk associated with investing in Bitcoin or in Amazon, for that matter. I took very calculated, risk-adjusted reasons for moving into Walmart stock. And it's performing pretty much the way I thought it would, although I thought it would have gotten to this point a lot sooner than it has. But again, when I focused on value, when I focused on a blue-chip company, when I focused on a company that paid a reliable, consistent dividend, the clock was in my favor, not the other way around. And that's what's so important about owning out-of-favor blue-chip companies. Specifically in regards to Walmart, I think it's still undervalued. They like say it's trading right around uh, just a little bit below $82 today. I think it's 80, eighty-one eighty or something like that. I think Walmart will hit 90 if not $100. In fact, I'm almost 100% sure it will hit $90 or $100 a share. The caveat there is that I don't know when. Could be in six months, could be in six years. If it's in six years, I'm probably not going to hold it that long. But to me, in my estimation, Walmart was a good risk-adjusted investment. It was worth betting on because I felt that back two years ago or even back six months ago when it was still trading around $70 a share or less, it was a good investment because in the future, it would be an appreciating asset. It would be worth more in the future than it was today, and along the way, it would pay about a 3% dividend. That really sums up my version of the dogs of the Dow strategy, and I want to emphasize here too that... Not all the value or the kind of dog positions that I own are on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Coincidentally, during this investment cycle, a lot of them happen to be, but for example, I own Starbucks. Starbucks is not a Dow stock, but I think it fits in that category. It's a multinational, blue-chip, very well-managed company that is likely to be worth more in the future than it is today, even though right now it's stumbling and it's having some problems. Right now, Starbucks is getting some bad press. People are saying, oh, they're, you know, they have stagnant sales in the U.S., blah, blah, blah. That's the mantra that the media is going to mimic and, and echo. But, you know, in three months or six months or 12 months, that story will turn around and the headline will be Walmart's growing in China. You know, Walmart's opening seven restaurants a day in China. Their growth is unlimited, blah, blah, blah. And just as today the stock is getting depressed and oversold, in three months or six months or 12 months, it'll become overbought and it'll be hyped up with media coverage that's just as nonsensical and meaningless as the negative things they're saying about Starbucks today. So I own Starbucks. I've held Starbucks for, I don't know, probably a year or so. It isn't a true value play because it does have a high price to earnings ratio but it's not high in terms of the growth potential again it's a risk adjusted return that i think is viable I'll tell you another one that i own verizon bought this back in i don't know maybe may very similar chart structure as when i had bought walmart it was you know hovering around a uh, 50 day moving average trying to break resistance at the 50 day line it was just before earnings there was a lot of negative press on it I was betting that it was going to do well in earnings and it was going to break out. Well, it didn't. Again, it fell apart, but I wasn't going to sell Verizon. It pays a 5% annual dividend. It is by far the best mobile cellular network in the United States. It has a loyal following, and all the competition that it's getting from T Mobile and Sprint and some of these lesser players I mean, the bottom line is they were just all cutting the price. You look at a stock of a company like T-Mobile you'll see that roughly I'm, I'm doing this from memory so I may not be exactly right but roughly T-Mobile had twice the valuation as Verizon and it had half or less as much of a profit margin and so the valuation equation was all out of balance T-Mobile wasn't gaining customers because they had a better mousetrap they were simply just cutting the price and commoditizing cell phone service and There's no magic to that. All Verizon had to do to compete was cut their price. And since they had such a much smaller price to earnings ratio and such a much larger overall operating margin, they had the ability to do that. In my estimation, I think that Sprint and T-Mobile really just have the high valuations that they have is because someone expects a large company to come in and buy them out. I'll tell you the others on my list. Disney, that's something I've held for, I don't know, probably close to a year, if not a year. It was doing extremely well. A couple months ago, there were some media companies that came out with some problems. And because of sympathy pains, Disney stock got hit. Well, it's recovered some, but not enough. I think it uh, earlier in the year had gotten up to around $116 a share. I think it's going to $120 or $125. And I, for now, don't plan on selling it until it gets up to about that level. Again, it's a good, solid company it has a reasonable valuation they consistently pay a dividend they consistently make a profit that is not likely to change no matter how out of favor that media sector of the stock market may be right now so i like disney three other of the positions that i hold that are contrarian that i just recently got into over the last you know say month or so are general electric ibm and intel i purchased all these on the same day and although it was for different reasons They overall fit that contrarian value position. General Electric is way out of favor, but it is a top-quality industrial company. It's a global leader. It has its tentacles and everything that will be, in my opinion, favorable automation trends of the future. Their equipment and their technologies are being used in robotic manufacturing. They're involved in aerospace. They're involved in electrical engines. They're involved in battery technology. They're involved um, very heavily now in oil exploration, oil services. And so while GE is a little bit out of favor now, it pays a solid dividend. It has a very low valuation of only 15 times earnings. And it pays a dividend of like 3.75. I think is going to be worth more in the future than it is today. And until it is, I'll be happy to collect that you know near 4% dividend payment. Similar story with Intel. Intel is a technology company that stumbled in recent years. It's never fully recovered from the dot-com bubble bursting. It's missed a lot of the trends uh, of mobile and internet and all those kind of things. It's generally behind the curve in getting its chips into the new trendy type technologies. However, it does have a large core central business. It's cash-rich, and it's able to go out and buy new companies and new technologies. I think uh, they're taking the right steps to move in that direction, much as Walmart did a couple years ago. The price-to-earnings ratio on Intel is a very reasonable uh, under 12 times earnings. It pays a dividend of near 3%. It has just recently broken out above its 200-day moving average. I think I got into it at a good time. I plan on holding it until it turns around. You see, this theme is not complicated. It's buying value that's out of favor. The last of these, and this is one that if you'd asked me a couple years ago, I would have told you I would never buy it, and that's IBM. But you see, market conditions have changed, and so my perceptions of IBM have changed. Now, this is one that, like Walmart and like Verizon, have fallen apart right after I bought it. I guess I didn't mention it when we talked about Verizon, but again, at one point it was down, I don't know, 10 or 11% from where I bought it at, but it's recovered almost all of that. It's right now down probably less than 2% or 1.5% from where I purchased it at. It's moving in the right direction. IBM is in that situation now. I bought it just ahead of earnings, but it got crushed after earnings, and it's down close to 8% from where I bought it at. But I'm not going to rush out in a panic and sell IBM. Its price-to-earnings ratio is only about 10 times earnings. It pays over a 4% dividend. And while it's had a lot of challenging times over the years, I think that some of their newer technology is going to benefit from things much like Intel. It's going to benefit from big data and the Internet of Things. And if they can get the right management in there, they can make money on their technologies like Watson. Now, will they do it? I don't think they're going to do it with their current CEO. And I think that they're going to fire that lady and she's going to move on to something else. Maybe she can work over at Uber. But that's what IBM needs. It needs a change in leadership. I was actually assuming that was going to happen on this most recent earnings announcement. And again, that's kind of why I front-ended it and bought IBM when I did. Because I really think that when they fire the CEO over at IBM, you're going to see a you know, 10% pop in the stock price. Now, am I telling you you should rush out and buy IBM? No, not at all. It's the most risky of my value positions. And you shouldn't do anything I say. You should listen to what I say, understand that it's part of my overall wealth strategy, it's how I got where I'm at today, and you should think about it and apply those things to your own life. But that's it. There you have it. That's the 20% or so of my portfolio that's dedicated to value, contrarian, out of favor, a big blue chip quality type companies. I'm likely to continue to add to that position as I see the right companies come available. And oh, incidentally, today I did make an addition to my portfolio. I purchased the iShares Healthcare Sector uh, ETF, IXJ, that's India X-Ray Juliet, as you'll see if you watch that YouTube video, I am a proponent of healthcare. I've been investing in it all year long. I had to liquidate a position because iShares got rid of that particular ETF, and I'm basically taking that money and rolling it into IXJ. I just purchased that today. If you are a subscriber to the free email list over at investablewealth.com, you'd have received a notice on that. Well, hey, as always, until the next episode, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.